Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in Doctrine and Covenants section 2 and Joseph Smith history verses 27 through 65. And this begins with a vision that Joseph has when he's a young teenager. It's been a few years since the first vision. And he writes in verse 27, I continued to pursue my common vocations in life until the 21st day of September, 1823. And in 1823, so he's 17-ish, and he's, he's praying because he got caught up in jovial company and levity and the weakness of youth. I want to talk just a little bit about the vision that he has of Moroni in his bedroom as we start this podcast. If you've stood in that room where Joseph was, and you imagine in your mind a bed with his siblings, they're all sleeping in that room, one of the things the critics against us say, how could that vision have happened? How could you see someone who was wearing a robe that was, verse 32, exceedingly white, and their countenance like lightning, this angel that has whiteness and brilliance, according to verse 31, how could that even be possible with all these people in the room? And so... I want to talk a little bit about what Joseph tells us about his spiritual sight. We can read what Joseph tells us and what others tell us in the scriptures about spiritual sight. Look at Joseph Smith history, verse 20 and verse 42. In verse 20, he says, I found myself lying on my back. And then in verse 42, the vision opened my mind that I could see clearly and distinctly. So in those verses, we read that Joseph is in a position where perhaps his spirit was brought to another location, or where he saw something with his spiritual eyes. In fact, that's what we read in the book of Moses. If you look in Moses verse 11 of chapter 1, so Moses 1.11, Moses says, "'Mine eyes beheld God, but not my natural, but my spiritual eyes.'" And then in Doctrine and Covenants 76.12, Joseph relates when he has the vision of the three degrees of glory, he says, by the power of the spirit, our eyes were opened and our understandings were enlightened so as to see and understand the things of God. In fact, people that were in the room that saw Joseph and Sidney have this vision talk about their countenances being changed and that they're seeing things that the other people in the room could not see, but they could with their spiritual eyes. By the way, Philo Dibble was there in the room, and he said, I saw the glory and felt the power, but did not see the vision. So Joseph's in a room with many people, and only two people saw the vision. So the Lord doesn't necessarily have everyone around Joseph Smith having the same experience that Joseph is having. Hopefully that makes sense. So that must have been what happened on that morning when he's in a room with his siblings, and they're not having the same experience that he's having. In fact, Bryce, just the thing that you just mentioned, there's this text called the Ascension of Isaiah, which is these legends of how Isaiah had the Ascension where he goes up into heaven, and everything Philo Dibble says is in this ancient text, essentially. In the Ascension of Isaiah, the sixth chapter, it says, as he was speaking in the Holy Spirit in the hearing of everyone there, he became silent and his mind was taken up from him. And he saw not the men who stood before him. The mind in his body was taken up from him. 
But his breath was in him, for he was seeing a vision. The vision which holy Isaiah saw was not of this world, but from the world which is hidden from the flesh. So Philo Dibble's talking about what he's seeing in a contemporary, like modern historical account. And yet we have this ancient text called the Ascension of Isaiah, which is saying the same thing, that there were people that stood with Isaiah where Isaiah sees and ascends up into the heavens, and they're like, we can see him, and he can see stuff, but we can't see it. And one more example, on the day the church was reorganized, on April 6th, Joseph Smith receives a revelation standing in front of the whole group, and no one sees the revelation. Joseph just kind of pauses, and then he says, write this down, and he receives a revelation. So this is a common thing for Joseph to have his vision, his eyes open to heaven, to see and to hear what people around him don't see and hear. So let's talk about weakness of youth and Joseph and his circumstance, Bryce. So Joseph says that, I mean, remember, he's 14 when the first vision occurs. He would have turned 15 in the year 1820, in December. So in 1820, where he has the first vision, he's 14. And when Moroni comes, he's 17. He's 17 turning 18. So he's basically the age of a senior, in high school. Now think about your high school years. Think about some of the silly, crazy things you did. Well, Joseph Smith is that age group, and he says that he fell into foolish errors. Verse 28, he says, being of very tender years and persecuted by those who ought to have been his friends and treated him kindly, he fell, I was left to many kinds of temptations, and mingling with all kinds of society, I frequently fell into many foolish errors and displayed the weakness of youth and the foibles of human nature. And then he says, but no one should suppose I committed any major sins or major crimes. But he fell into what he calls the weakness of youth. Now, my wife and I have 10 children, and I have spent my whole life surrounded by youth I love the youth of the kingdom, but they do have a weakness. We all have a weakness. It's the weakness of youth. And Joseph Smith says he fell into the weakness of youth. I find it fascinating that foolish errors is plural and foibles of human nature is plural, but weakness of youth is singular, as if he's saying, I showed the weakness of youth. I fell into foolish errors. I, expo- I showed the foibles of human nature, but I displayed the weakness of youth. May I suggest that here is the universal problem of youth. Now, maybe this will help those of you who are listening with parenting or as you deal with the young people in your family and in the church. But what is the weakness of youth? Now, I'm, this is Bryce here. I'm just going to use the Joseph Smith story and 30 years of being surrounded by the youth of this church to share what I believe is the weakness of youth, the one that Joseph Smith is going to display on numerous occasions. So, Let's jump into the visit of Moroni. Now, we're going to come back to the meat. I just want to use this to set the setting here. Moroni is going to come four times between the night and the next day, four visits to Joseph. And every single time, he repeats word for word exactly what he said the last time. 
So the first time he comes, he really needs to help Joseph Smith understand where he fits in the overall scheme of things, the whole plan of salvation. So he quotes a whole bunch of Old Testament prophecies. Now, we'll get into that in just a minute. But he quotes these Old Testament prophecies and says, do you understand why there's going to be a restoration? And that's the first visit. So verses 29 through 43 is the first visit, and then 44 and 45 is the second visit. And notice he says, again related the very same thing which had done the first visit without the least variation. So word for word, he repeats the first visit and then adds a new one. Now, verse 45 says, he talks about great judgments which were coming upon the earth. So first visit, here's the Old Testament prophecies about you and the restoration. Second visit, let me tell you what's coming, Joseph, that we need to prevent or at least prepare the world for. And then verses 46 and 47 is visit three. And again, middle of verse 46, he rehearsed or repeated over again to me the same things as before. So he repeats visit one, he repeats visit two. So he talks about the prophecies of the Old Testament, and then he quotes the destruction that's coming in the latter days. Now, what's new this time? Verse 46, an angel standing in the air, clearly clothed in power from heaven, not a source you should dismiss, but an angel standing in the air added a caution saying, Satan would try to tempt him to get the plates for the very purpose of getting rich. This he forbade me, saying that I must have no other object in view in getting the plates but to glorify God and must not be influenced by any other motive than that of building his kingdom, otherwise I couldn't get them. An angel standing in the air says, Joseph, Satan is going to try and tempt you to get these plates to get rich. Don't do it. Now, that was the last thing that Moroni said in the night visions. So he wakes up in the morning, he goes to work, he's weak, his father sends him home. He falls, he comes, he wakes up, and there's Moroni for the fourth visit. Verse 49 is the fourth visit. And again, he related unto me all that he had related to me the previous night. So clearly, right there in the field, Joseph was told one more time, Satan is going to try and get you to use these plates to get rich. Don't do it. Now, verse 49, he adds one new thing, which is go tell your father. So Joseph ran to tell his father and then went to Cumorah. So how long has it been since Moroni telling him that Satan was going to tempt him to get the plates to get rich and his journey to Cumorah? How long could it possibly have taken to go talk to his father and then head to Cumorah? What, two hours at the very most? So two hours ago, and the last thing Moroni said in your three night visions is Joseph, listen to me, Satan is going to try and tempt you to get the plates to get rich. Clearly, it should be on his mind. And yet, the whole journey to Cumorah, Joseph is thinking about getting the plates to get rich. Even though less than, what, two hours ago, 
an angel standing in the air says, Joseph, Satan is going to tempt you to use these plates to get rich. And yet he does it. On the way to Camorra, he falls into the very trap he was warned. Now, those of you who are parents are probably sitting here laughing because this is such a teenage thing. You tell them and you tell them and you tell them and you say, standing in the air like Moroni, don't do this. And yet they get caught up in the moment and they do the very thing you warned them not to do. Now, everything Bryce is talking about is not outlined in Joseph Smith history, but it is in the accounts that he relates. It's in Oliver Cowdery's writings, and I would really suggest that you read Saints. That first volume is really well put together by some great historians that have worked really well to kind of put all these pieces together so that as you go through the Doctrine and Covenants, you can see these real men and women of the Restoration. And we are going to give you a new resource. A little side note here. Um, If you go to the very end of the Pearl of Great Price, you'll notice after the verses end, there's a little excerpt. It's in a different font so that you know it's not the same as Joseph Smith's account. That's Oliver Cowdery writing. Oliver Cowdery wrote a series of eight letters that he published. It's kind of an exchange between him and W.W. Phelps. And he's kind of answering these questions that W.W. Phelps has asked. Now, Joseph Smith is overseeing this. We know that because Joseph makes a few comments. So these letters that Oliver writes are pretty legit because Joseph is there. Um, So we're going to put them in the show notes. They're the eight Oliver Cowdery letters. And that's where we get a little bit more of this account that, you know, what happened on his first journey. Let me read from those letters about this journey to Camorra. Here was a struggle indeed, for when he calmly reflected upon his errand, he knew that if God did not give, he could not obtain. And again, with the thought of hope of obtaining, his mind would be carried back to its former reflection of poverty, abuse, wealth, grandeur, and ease, until before arriving at the place described, this wholly occupied his desire." And to use his own words, it seemed as though two invisible powers were influencing. Now, notice what Oliver said, to use his own words. So Joseph's telling this to Oliver. It seemed as though two invisible powers were influencing or striving to influence his mind with the reflection that if he obtained the object of his pursuit, it would be through the mercy and condescension of the Lord, and that every act or performance in relation to it must be in strict accordance with the instructions of that personage who communicated the intelligence to him first. And the other, with the thought of reflections like those previously mentioned, contrasting his former and present circumstances in life, with those to come. Joseph's family was poor. And then Oliver continues, that precious instruction recorded on the sacred page, pray always, which was expressly impressed upon him, was at length entirely forgotten. And as I previously remarked, a fixed determination to obtain and aggrandize himself occupied his mind when he arrived at the place where the record was found. Joseph was fixated on getting the plates and solving his poverty situation. So he did the very thing that Moroni told him not to do. 
an angel standing in there. Now tell me that's not the weakness of youth. Tell me that's not the weakness of youth. The church dating standard, for example, is to not steady date while you're in high school. The brethren have made that very clear. The strength of youth pamphlet makes that very clear. And most youth know that that's the case. They shouldn't steady date in high school. But man, what happens when he likes her and she likes him? The weakness of youth, right? They, even though they've been told a thousand times they shouldn't steady date, what happens? That's the weakness of youth. How many times do young people get caught up in the moment and they do something stupid. I know a group of teenagers who on the night before graduation were messing around in a canyon. And you know those pipes that go across the roads in the canyons? They crawled up on one of them and walked across and one of them fell and died that night. Tragedy. But how many times do we get caught up in the emotion in the thrill or the excitement, and we forget the very warnings we've been given. Tell me that's not the weakness of youth. I got to tell you, my boys, I tell them all the time, I say, I am not any smarter than you. I've just been around longer. Like as adults, our children are brilliant people, but we have more mileage. (laughs) What's that line from Indiana Jones? (laughs) Something about the mileage. He's like, it's not the years, honey, it's the mileage. Like, You know, the tires have worn out and there's been some mileage on the odometer. You know things differently. And you know what I find fascinating, Bryce, about Joseph? He learns over time to really withhold things. He has all this truth and he learns, if I give everybody what I know, they're going to go crazy. There's a great poem that, that goes something like this. All light must be given gradually or else all men will go blind. In other words you got to be careful. And that leads us exactly to one of the antidotes that Oliver gives us to the weakness of youth and why we have youth programs, and that's why we parent our children. Here is an antidote. Oliver continues, You may wonder perhaps why the mind of our brother should be so occupied with the thoughts of the good of this world at the time of arriving at Camorra. Why would Joseph do this, right? That's what Oliver's saying. You might wonder why Joseph was doing this. After having been wrapped in the visions of heaven during the night, but the mind of man is easily turned. If it is not held by the power of God through the prayer of faith, And you will remember that I have said that two invisible powers were operating upon his mind during his walk from his residence to Camorra, and that the one urging the certainty of wealth and ease in this life had so powerfully wrought upon him that the great object so carefully and impressively named by the angel had entirely gone from his recollection that only a fixed determination to now obtain urged him forward. So youth are in the same position today, two forces working on them, a force to do good, a force to do evil, and their minds are easily turned. Now listen to what Oliver Cowdery says. In this, do not understand me to attach blame to our brother. He was young, and his mind easily turned from correct principles unless he could be favored with a certain round of experience. The antidote to the weakness of youth is experience. Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail will write, Time, the things of God are of deep import. And time 
and experience and careful and solemn and ponderous thoughts can only find them out. This is exactly why the Lord allows us to have the experiences of youth so that we gain those experience and are wiser. One of the reasons I think Joseph calls this the, the weakness of youth is we're supposed to learn from our experiences and avoid that weakness as we get older. But young people don't have that experience. And they're often turned. They're turned by social pressure. They're turned by their emotions. They're turned by so many things. And they lack the experience to realize that they're being turned. So that leads us to the other antidote. If you'll go back to Joseph's myth history, back to verse 28, Joseph said that the reason he fell into foolish errors and displayed the weakness of youth is he didn't have the right kind of friends. Notice he says, I was persecuted by those who, who ought to have been my friends. Now, what do good friends do? Ready? Joseph Smith gives us the greatest definition of a true friend I've ever found anywhere. And it's right here in the scriptures in the Pearl of Great Price. True friends treat you kindly. And if they suppose you to be deluded, they endeavor in a proper and affectionate manner to reclaim you. There's this false idea out there that true friends have your back and they won't squeal on you. True friends don't do things to get you in trouble. Or or another one is that they just like me who I am. Yeah. They don't want me to get better. They right? accept me with all my imperfections, and they let my imperfections lead me into foolish errors. Right. Joseph says, no, true friends, if you're going to destroy yourself, will stop you. A true friend will, in a proper and affectionate manner, reclaim you. In other words, what the youth need are friends that will say, no, this is dumb. We're not going to do this. And that's exactly why they need parents and youth advisors and bishops and prophets who have experience that they don't have. I would add that that might even be one of the many reasons why we need to get married. We need to have a companion. A companion keeps us safe, right? Who has his or her own set of experiences. Right. Who is a true friend. I mean, my wife can tell me things that no one else would dare tell me. Things that I need to hear, things that corrections that need to be made in, in me. And that's a true friend. A true friend says no. There is a wonderful episode of Franklin the Turtle. I don't know if you've watched Franklin the Turtle, the cartoon. I've never seen Franklin the Turtle. But my kids loved Franklin, and there was this episode that had a profound influence on me. Well, well, well hold up. Well, who is Franklin, and Franklin's, why is he a turtle? Franklin's a turtle, and he has a friend who's a bear, and he has a friend who's a snail and rabbit, and it's just the adventures of Franklin. It's a wonderful cartoon. Well, there's this one episode where Franklin, one of Franklin's best friend is a snail, and his name is Snail. Franklin and Snail are playing soccer together, and they score a goal. And in the process of doing so, Snail cracks his shell. And Franklin sees, eventually sees that his, his shell is cracked. He says, you better tell your mom. And Snail says, no, if I tell my mom, she won't let me play soccer. And for a moment, Franklin does what we think is a good friend. Oh, okay. 
I won't say anything. I won't tell your mom. I'm with you. I've got your back. That's what people think true friendship is. But as time goes on, Franklin becomes aware that Snell's broken shell is causing him a lot of pain. And one day he's having a conversation with his mom and he says, Mom, do shell cracks heal themselves? Sometimes, but bigger cracks need a doctor, says his mom. So Franklin runs out and he finds Snail. And this is just a beautiful moment. He says, Snail, this is more important than soccer. Either you tell your mom and dad or I will. That's a true friend. That's the kind of friend that will prevent you from falling into the weakness of youth. And they tell you hard things. They tell you hard things. And that's what parents need to do. That's how parents are going to save their children. Not by looking the other way when they sin. We need to love them no matter what, but we don't need to look the other way. We need the kind of friends that say, either you tell your mom and dad or I will. This is more important than soccer. That's a true friend, right? Yeah, and that's what Joseph Smith said he didn't have. He didn't have anyone in his life that said, no, Joseph, this is unbecoming of someone who has seen what you have seen and knows what you know. And so youth need good friends. I think one of the most important things in in the life of a teenager is that they have someone in their life. It can be an adult. It can be their parents. It can be a youth advisor. It can be another friend. It could be another teenager. But they have someone in their life with enough experience to say, no, I'm not going to let you fall into this pit. I love you too much. I love you too much to watch you destroy your life. And I think that is one of the most important things I learned from young Joseph, who himself displayed the weakness of youth. And it gives me comfort to know that, yeah, it's common. We all do this. Joseph did it. We do it. We get caught up in the emotion of a moment, and we forget what we've been taught. Joseph forgot what Moroni said. And he became fixated on getting those plates. So if you will learn from your experiences, if you will allow the Lord to teach you. One thing I love is when Joseph loses the 116 pages, man, he never makes that mistake again. Because he always learned from his experiences. And experience will teach you how to avoid those same pitfalls. And having a good friend will keep you out of the weakness of youth. So that's kind of the setting here, but now let's jump into what Moroni said. It's critical as you study this this week and come follow me, Joseph Smith needed to understand the role that he played in the big picture. So Moroni comes, and the first thing he does is, let's quote, let me tell you about the Old Testament. Let me quote Old and New Testament prophecies so that you understand. And so where did Joseph fit? Why quote Malachi? And this is going to lead us to section two, because section two of the Doctrine and Covenants is simply what Moroni said to Joseph Smith, quoting Malachi. So, Mike, why is the Malachi 4 prophecy such a big deal? I love that Joseph has all these Old Testament passages quoted to him. He quotes Joel, 
He quotes Malachi. He quotes Isaiah. Now, we're going to look at the Isaiah passages later when we get to section, I think it's section 113. He quotes Acts. What I really want to talk about is Malachi 4. So if you go to Malachi 4, this is also section 2 of the Doctrine and Covenants, but part of this is also in the Joseph Smith history, and it's not in section 2, if that makes any sense. And so in in the show notes, what we did was we parsed them out so you can see them. So for example, if you go to Joseph Smith history, verse 37, that's the quote of Malachi 4.1. But then you read Doctrine and Covenants section 2, and that's going to be Malachi 4, verse 5. So I'm just going to read it, kind of put these two pieces together. So look at Joseph Smith history, verse 37. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, all that do wickedly shall burn as stubble. For they that come shall burn them, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch." What does that mean? And then, uh, if you go to section 2 of the Doctrine and Covenants, we read, Behold, I will reveal unto you the priesthood by the hand of Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers, and the hearts of the children shall turn to their fathers. If it were not so, the whole earth would be utterly wasted at his coming. Now, the roots of our temple understanding and what goes on in the temple is really encapsulated in these passages in Malachi 4. And it's given to this 17-year-old. And I don't know how much Joseph Smith grasps at this time when he has this quoted to him. He also tells us that he quoted part of the third chapter of Malachi, and he quoted the fourth or the last chapter of the same prophecy. Now, when Joseph gives us Malachi 4, he skips part of it. We're going to talk about the part that he skips, but he just kind of gives us some of the variation. This whole passage is about, when it talks about being left without root or branch, that is the family of Adam, the family of Adam and Eve, the children of God. In other words, we're all to be sealed together. And this is, if you think about the highest ordinances in the temple, when a man and woman are sealed in holy matrimony for a time in all eternity, That is the purpose of the creation of the earth. And if you take the bookends of the Old Testament, you take Genesis 1 through 3 and you take Malachi 3 and 4, both of these have everything to do with the nature of God and the nature of man. What I mean by that is Elohim is used throughout the first couple bits of Genesis, and that means God's plural. And then we read that he made them male and female in the image of God. And so I'm going to push this idea that there's plural, that there's Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother. And we didn't really talk about this much in the podcast on the first vision, but it's so important that Joseph sees, and I find it fascinating when he sees Moroni, he sees his hands and his feet. In other words, Moroni is a person, and the Father and the Son are people. And I would submit to you, so is Heavenly Mother. And so when male and female are made in their image, we are made in the image of our Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother. And so in this context, the purpose of the earth is for us to be sealed together as families. Now, many prophets have spoken about this. Just a couple of quotes. Joseph Fielding Smith said, many members of the church have thought that the keys restored by Elijah were the keys pertaining to the dead. And therefore, Elijah practiced in his day ordinances on behalf of the dead. But this is an error. 
There was no work performed for the dead by Elijah or any other prophet before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The keys held by Elijah were the keys of the sealing power by which all ordinances are sanctioned and approved upon which the eternal seal of authority is placed. And then he further said, that's the purpose of the earth, to have our spouse sealed to us for time and all eternity. And Joseph Smith said many of the same things in teaching the prophet Joseph Smith. He talks about the same thing, that the keys of Elijah are to put families together. So that's really big picture, the purpose of the earth. Now, I'm going to geek out a little bit on Malachi 4. So he quotes part of it in Joseph Smith history, but he says that Moroni reads the whole thing. So we read verse 1, but look at verse 2. Verse 2 is not in Joseph Smith history, but Joseph tells us that this is quoted. He says, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall, and ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be as ashes under the soles of your feet. Now that's kind of changed in the Joseph Smith history, for they that come shall burn them. If you've seen that picture of Jesus coming and the second coming, and there's all those angels trumpeting and they're coming down, those are the saints. And we read this in Paul's writings, and we read this in section 88, verses 95 and 96. They that come shall burn them, this coming of the Lord of hosts, which is of armies. There'll be ashes under the soles of your feet. We're still in verse 3. Then go to verse 4. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant. And there's this one verse on Moses. And then skip down to verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Or in Moroni's words, I will reveal the priesthood, right? The keys of Elijah. But the one verse I want to talk about is verse 2. In verse 2 of Malachi 4 is a huge editing. What it really says, if you read it in the Hebrew... And to you that fear my name shall the son of, and it's Zedekah with a, with a he at the end, which is a feminine ending, the son of righteousness, feminine, will arise, feminine, with healing in her wings. So verse 2 is drenched in feminine symbolism. It's completely drenched in it. And I can see why the translators struggled. They read this and they're like, what do we do with this? And so the King James translators just, now some of the translations just say healing in its wings, third person singular, but it's got that feminine ending still. Um, the King James translators clearly not knowing what to do with this, they just kind of gave us this masculine definition and they kind of ran with verse two. And I see that because as a Christian, I look at that and I'm like, yes, Jesus Christ has healing in his wings. His, his arms are outstretched for this embrace. So I like that. In the Book of Mormon, they changed son to son. It's a homophone. Son, S-U-N, to son, S-O-N. And some LDS scholars have said maybe that might be a scribal error. I don't know. It doesn't matter because it's all of it. In other words, here's the image I want you to see. We have Shemesh Zedekah. We have this son of righteousness in the feminine that's rising and it's also feminine and is tied in with healing in her wings. What is this? In ancient Israel, before all the changes, there was this notion that there was a mother goddess. And we read this in a lot of the literature that was surrounding the Israelites anciently. And we'll cite this in the show notes. But they call her the royal heir, the virgin, the great lady who tramples upon the sea the creator of all things holy. And so 
a millennium before we ever get to the book of Revelation, two millennium even. The woman clothed with the sun in the book of Revelation chapter 12 could be this Hebrew goddess who was worshipped in Jerusalem until the purges of the 7th century. She's the queen of heaven, the consort of the king. Then later, Malachi, when he warns about the day of the Lord, he promised that the son of righteousness would rise up with healing in her wings. And in the book of Revelation, she gives birth to her son, and then she flies away, once again, on eagle's wings into the desert, if you read Revelation 12, verse 14. So what? Like, what, what does this matter? What, what does any of this stuff mean? And first of all, I want to say I'm totally fine with the translation in verse 2. It's totally fine with me. I want to just suggest a couple things for us to consider with verse 2 and see how it fits in Joseph's life. The idea of a goddess giving birth to a dying and rising god is not uncommon in ancient Israel. Many scholars have talked about this. We see this in Egypt. We see this throughout the early, early texts in Israel, and we see this even in Greece. Now, the great lady who tramples the sea could very well be Asherah, this deity that we've talked about when we talked about 1 Nephi 8 and 11. She was venerated by the Israelites in the first temple period, and she had lots of different names in the ancient Near East. But in many cases, depending on the name, but in many cases, she's doing the same things, and she's clearly found in the Old Testament, though later editors tried to take her out. And so in one sense, I just want to read this, they that fear God's name will meet her. They that fear God's name. Look what it says. For you that fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in her wings, and they will grow up as cows in the stall. In other words, they'll be brought to a place of safety. To me, this is a resurrection type of teaching or ritual. It's a sacred heavenly embrace. The word for wings can also mean outstretched arms. Now, if you go to the Book of Mormon, how many times in the Book of Mormon do we read where the Savior says, I have outstretched arms ready to receive you? This is the embrace, which is a symbol of literally the atonement can mean an embrace to be covered. So think about this. We go into the presence of our Heavenly Mother, and she embraces us. She's also an embodied, exalted being of brightness like the sun. She is, because she's a resurrected being. And she's also the embodiment of the tree. If you read 1 Nephi 8 and 11, there's a, there's a tree shown. And when he sees the tree, the angel shows him the virgin, Mary. And go back and listen to the stuff that we did on 1 Nephi 8 through 11. And we cite a lot of this stuff in the show notes. There's a lot of dirt roads you can go on this. But the first reading I, I want to take with verse 2 is this idea of a heavenly mother. Now, have you ever, <laughs> I'm sure you have, you go to the airport and you watch these return missionaries come home. And who do they hug first? Yeah. Always. And, and even if I don't know that kid, even talking about it, I have chills go up and down my spine. I watch these kids and their shoes are worn out and they come and they hug their mother and the spirit just washes over me. And that's going to be our reunion with our mother. When we go home and we see our mother, for many of us, our mothers, they beat us to the spirit world. So I see this as a there's multiple connections here, but I see this as a possible reading of verse 2. Well, let me quote from one of our hymns, written by Eliza R. Snow, who got this from Joseph Smith. I had learned to call thee Father through the Spirit from on high, but until the key of knowledge was restored, I knew not why. In the heavens are perilled single, 
Know the thought makes reason stare. Truth is reason. Truth eternal. Tells me I've a mother there. Now this verse is what Mike is describing. This is hymn number 292. When I leave this frail existence, when I lay this mortal by, Father, Mother, may I meet you in your royal courts on high. Then at length, when I've completed all you sent me forth to do, with your mutual approbation, let me come and dwell with you. Now, Joseph's revealing this stuff in Nauvoo. And he's 17 years old when he gets section two, Mike. Yeah. yeah. I'm a huge fan of an embodied God. I know that enemies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they call us the anthropomorphists, and I'm like, bring it. Because Jesus, Luke 24, has a resurrected body. I mean, you can't read the New Testament and escape it. A couple other interpretations of verse two. Could this woman be the church? You got to go to the Joseph Smith translation of Revelation 12. But in the context of Revelation 12, there's a woman and she's clothed with the sun. We're going to see this again later in section five of the Doctrine and Covenants, clear as the moon and fair as the sun and terrible as an army with banners. But in Revelation 12, there's this woman and she's going to give birth to a child. And the woman, once again, is clothed with the sun. And according to the Joseph Smith translation, she's the, the church. And the child is going to rule the world with a rod of iron. In other words, he's the political kingdom of God. So work with me here. Before we can have the political kingdom of God, when Jesus comes and reigns as king of kings, there has to be a church to prepare the world for the kingdom of God. So could the church be this Shamash Zedekah, this righteousness with healing in her wings to heal a sick and fallen world? Could the church be the very vehicle that prepares the earth so that we have roots and branches? And I say, yeah, the vehicle of the church, the temples, it's all. Verse 2 is the church. Clearly, that's what we're doing. We're healing. We're trying to put back a sick world and fix things. And we need a mom and a dad. And our dad, in this sense, is clearly Christ. Jesus and his atonement is married to the church and her covenants and her priesthood authority. And they save us. Mom and dad save us. So also, it's the atonement. They that revere my name, Malachi 4, verse 2, will be healed by the Son of Righteousness. It's the embrace of God. We are covered or embraced by our heavenly parents. That is the symbol I want you to put in your mind when you think about the atonement. And what greater symbol than the family? And so Asherah was a tree. She was, that was one of her symbols. So we're back to the tree. Notice that the Old Testament begins and ends with the symbol of the tree, And notice that the New Testament ends with the symbol of a tree. And notice that the Book of Mormon begins with a symbol of the tree. So I think there's a theme here. And by the way, I I really do think that a lot of these ideas are early, early pre-Jewish apostasy ideas of the tree, that John's putting this in there, that Lehi is coming from this tradition. So in closing, on my little geek out moment of Malachi 4 verse 2, I just couldn't help myself. I'm like, I have to share this. It's all about the family. When we embrace our heavenly parents, we're covered. We're covered in love. When we come into Christ, he atones, he covers us. And when we go to the temple, if you think about all the the things that we do in the temple represent putting on Christ and coming unto him. Just a thought, especially if you're a mom. When your child comes into the slusher room for the first time, that is kind of what it will be like. 
I once had a student say, I don't see the tree anywhere in the Holy of Holies. And I said, the first time you went to the slusher room, what did you do? And she's like, I hugged my mom. I'm like, there it is. That's, that's what I want you to think about when you see this. So Bryce, to me, Malachi 4 is layered, it's temple, it's family, and it's blowing my mind that Joseph at 17, he's like, here it is. And so let's be clear, the very first, now I know section one comes sequentially first, but it doesn't come chronologically first. If you go to that chronological order that's before section one, section one doesn't come first. Section two is the first section of the Doctrine and Covenants. So let me be clear, the Doctrine and Covenants begins with a very, very powerful reference to temples and what we do in them. And that if we didn't do that, the whole earth would be wasted, meaning the earth has not lived up to its, its created purpose. If we don't seal families for time and all eternity, then we've m- missed the whole purpose of the earth. So the very first section of the Doctrine and Covenants is a clear reference to temple. Now, just kind of playing on that theme, let me just take you throughout the whole rest of the Doctrine and Covenants and show you how the Lord feels about temples. He begins the Doctrine and Covenants with a reference to temple by quoting Moroni on the night that he comes to Joseph Smith. Then he sends them to Ohio. And when he sends them to Ohio, he says, I'll give you my law. Notice what happens everywhere the saints go from Ohio. One of the places they go from Ohio is to Jackson County. So turn to the very first section given in Jackson County, that's section 57. The first time they ever stand foot in Jackson County, Missouri, Joseph gets section 57, and what does the Lord say in verse 3? This is Zion, and oh, by the way, there's a spot for the temple right there. First section in Jackson County, Missouri, and the Lord is talking about a temple. Now, when they leave Jackson County, when they get kicked out of Jackson County, where will they go next? They'll go to far west. So go back to your chronological list of sections. What's the very first section received in far west? Well, section 113 is just kind of a small Q&A on Isaiah. Section 114 is just two verses. So the real main section is section 115. And notice he names the church, and then verse 8, what does he say? Brand new to far west, and what does the Lord say? Build me a house. Build me a house. Okay, now, when they get kicked out of far west, where do they go? They go to Nauvoo. Very first section of it given in Nauvoo, 124. The very first section in Nauvoo. And what does the Lord say? Let's start in verse 26. Send ye swift messengers, chosen messengers, and say unto them, say unto the whole world, come ye with all your gold and your silver, your precious stones, with all your antiquities, with anyone who has knowledge of antiquities. Tell them to come and bring the box tree and the fir tree and the pine tree together with all the precious trees of the earth and with iron and copper and brass and zinc, with all your precious things and build a house to my name for the Most High to dwell therein. The very first section in Nauvoo, and it's probably still a swamp at this point. And the Lord says, get the finest materials on earth and build a house. Verse 28, there is not a place found on earth that he may come to and restore again that which was lost unto you. 
or which he hath taken away, even the fullness of the priesthood. Now, you want to know how the Lord feels about these temples? Look at verse 31 and 32. I command you, all ye my saints, to build a house unto me. And I grant unto you a sufficient time to build a house unto me. And during this time, it's okay if you baptize in the river. Verse 32, but at the end of this appointment, your baptisms for your dead shall not be acceptable to me. And if you do not do these things at the end of the appointment, you shall be rejected as a church with your dead. Tell me how the Lord feels about temples. First section in Jackson County. Basically, the first section in Far West, the very first section in Nauvoo. Saints come to Salt Lake. Four days. They're not even in the Salt Lake Valley. Brigham Young's been sick, so he hasn't been able to do this. But four days into the Salt Lake Valley, Brigham Young finally is feeling better, and they walk around and they look at the valley. And what does Brigham Young do? Fourth day, he's finally feeling good enough to do this. He sticks his cane into the ground and says, here we will build a temple to our God. And that is the very spot on which the Salt Lake Temple now resides. Tell me how the Lord feels about temples. That is a major theme in the Doctrine and Covenants. We did not get that message in the Book of Mormon which is why we need to study the Doctrine and Covenants, because you need to know how God feels about building these temples. Now, one more, going back to Kirtland, Ohio, section 88, he commanded them to build the temple, build a house, a house of prayer, a house of fasting, all those things he called it. Now, they don't do it, and they're poor. They don't have a lot of money. So by section 95, now go to section 95, they haven't done it yet. So the Lord begins and says, Verily thus saith the Lord unto you whom I love, and whom I love I also chasten, that their sins may be forgiven. For with the chastisement I prepare a way for their deliverance in all things out of temptation, and I have loved you. Wherefore you must needs be chastened and stand rebuked before my face, for you have sinned against me a very grievous sin. Now what has his church done that's so bad? You must needs be chastened and stand rebuked before my face, for you've sinned against me a very gravest sin. What was so bad? In that you have not considered the great commandment in all things that I have given unto you concerning the building of mine house. Verse 6, you have sinned a very grievous sin. You are walking in darkness at noonday. You are missing out on blessings I want to give you. Do you see how the Lord feels about temples? Now, just to make the point, four days later, June, that was June 1st, the Lord says that. On June 5th, Hiram Smith and Reynolds Calhoun go out, and with their bare hands, they start digging the trench for the walls of the temple. They got it. We must understand the significance of the temple. The Lord says in the very first section of the Doctrine and Covenants, if I come and you haven't built temples and you haven't done the work in the temples, the whole earth has not lived up to its created purpose. This really makes our theology stand apart from traditional Christianity. 
right? We're not just here because the Savior came and he died for our sins and we're going to go up and play harps on clouds. We're going to go male and female to be sealed. This is like the root of our theology, and it's used in the symbol of the tree, root, and branch. That, the, that idea of the tree is family. How many times does Jesus refer in the New Testament to his father as his father? Every time I taught somebody on my mission about our Heavenly Father and I asked them, what do you conceive of as God? They would conceive him as their father. And many people don't even know that in their theology, they teach that God is just this non-human thing. He's creator and we are created. It's totally different. And, and the, the restoration is no, like God is a person. Oh, and by the way, he has a wife. And by the way, we're to have families and we're going to get resurrected. And it's just radical theology. Everything Joseph is told at 14, at 17, stands in absolute contradistinction to everything the Christian world's teaching. And so I really think this is so good that we talk about this, like... The end of the Old Testament is temple. The end of Revelation is he has the vision of the temple. And then right out of the gate in the restoration, the restoration of who God is, remember order of importance we talked about last time, and family and temple. It's so good. Now, I'm going to go on a little dirt road. There's a fun little verse in the vision where he's talking to Moroni, where Moroni says, your name's going to be had for good and evil. That verse is in verse 33. He says, he called me by name and he said his name was Moroni and that God had a work for me to do. And then he says, your name is going to be had for good and evil among all nations. So I want to just tell the story about John H. Groberg, where he goes on his mission and he sees the fulfillment of this prophecy. He goes to the South Pacific and he goes to a lot of different islands, but one of them is this island called Tafahi. And I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of that island, but he's on this little island. He says, there's only 18 homes And he goes there and he says, I get this strange thought. Now, my take on it is it's the Holy Ghost. But he gets a strange thought. The thought comes to him and says, why don't you test that prophecy about Joseph's name and see what happens? And he's like, that's just a really weird thought. I'm in the middle of nowhere, 18 homes. So he meets this family in their home and he says, can we come in and talk to you? And they're like, yeah, come on in. So he's sitting down and he's talking to him and he says, we're from the United States. And the guy says, what's that? And then he says, well, it's this island far away, and there's millions of people, and the guy has no comprehension. And he starts asking this guy questions like, ask him about Europe. Never heard of Europe. Ask him about the world wars. Have you heard of World War II, the Korean War? Nothing. Didn't even know what was going on in the world. He's on this little island. And then John H. Groberg looks at him, and he says, have you heard of Joseph Smith? And the man says, I'm going to need to ask you to get out of my house. What? John H. Grober says, why? And he says, because I've heard of Joseph Smith. I was warned that there would be people that would come and talk to me about this false prophet. We had a minister come and talk to us. And he said, no matter what you do, don't listen to anybody talk to you about Joseph Smith. And Elder Goldberg had to leave. And he writes this in his journal. And he says, I never thought that in an island where they don't even know anything of the world, that they've heard the name of Joseph Smith. And so I just want to add my testimony to that. I think, think about this. This is a young man who says, I'm an obscure boy. I'm a man of no distinction. I'm just a guy that's working as a farmer. And at 17, he's told by an angel that his name will be had for good and evil. That prophecy came to pass. I mean, you, I don't recommend it, but you, you, you go search Joseph Smith's name. Man, they either love him or hate him. And so I just want to add my testimony to the group of people that say, Joseph Smith is the guy. Like he was called and he did what he was supposed to do and he wasn't here long. 
and I'm so grateful for his willingness to do the work. And I just find that fascinating, that verse 33, your name's going to be had for good and evil. It's come to pass. And let's bookend Joseph's life, because at the other end of Joseph's life, in Liberty Jail, he was told again, the ends of the earth shall inquire after thy name. And fools shall have thee in derision, and hell shall rage against thee. And that's exactly what's happening. Hell is raging against him. But then he was told, while the pure in heart, and the wise, and the noble, and the virtuous, shall seek counsel and authority and blessings constantly from under thy hand, thy people shall never be turned against thee by the testimony of traitors. This podcast is our testimony that Mike and I stand behind that man. Both of us have spent our lives studying his life, his teachings, his words, his example, the authority that he restored, the truths that he restored. And the two of us stand as witnesses that he was, in fact, a servant of God, that he was a moral, good, honest man who had keys bestowed upon his head. I love one time Joseph Smith said, don't expect me to be perfect. If you expect me to be perfect, then I'll expect you to be perfect. But if you want me to grant you some leeway, then you need to grant me some leeway. I know he wasn't perfect, but I know he was a man of God. So if you go to verse 53, it says, I was forbidden to take the plates. And then he says, until four years from that time. Now, Joseph tells us in that verse, hey, it was four years, but I don't think he knew that at the time. At the time, I think Joseph was like, well, when can I get him? And every year he would come in September and he would be tutored by Moroni. And on the third visit, so three years after the initial visit, he goes there and Alvin has passed away and Joseph's a little bit older. He has some more experience and the angel tells him a couple of things. One of the things he says is stop money digging. And that's in verse 55 and 56 where Joseph talks about he was involved in digging for money for Josiah Stoll. I'm not going to talk too much about that, but Moroni says, you got to get out of that. And then the other thing he tells him is he says, you need to bring someone with you. And this is kind of tying back into what Bryce was talking about, the importance of of friends. Now, Joseph looks at Moroni and he says, well, who am I supposed to bring? And Moroni looks at him and he says, you will know. And then Joseph writes, right when he said that, I knew it was Emma. He's not married. But right when Moroni says, you will know, Emma comes to his mind. And so Joseph courts Emma and they get married, and Emma's father is not too excited about it because there are lots of evil things being said about Joseph. And so they elope. And so when Joseph goes to get the plates, he and Emma go to get them. Now, it doesn't say this in Joseph Smith history, and I don't see Joseph Smith saying this, but I'm going to speculate a little bit. I think that part of Joseph's mission and part of being at least anciently a teacher of righteousness, was this idea that you're married. It's a very common thing in Judaism for a man, when he's to be a teacher of righteousness, that he be married. And I think Emma was integral into Joseph translating. She's an integral part of the restoration in Joseph's experience. I really think that there's so much shaping and molding in Joseph that's coming from Emma. 
that she's helping rub off these these rough edges and they're having these discussions and she's helping him guide him through this. And so in the show notes, I, I give a couple of references, at least from the ancient Jewish perspective, about the importance of being married. In fact, one scholar even said there's no such thing as the word bachelor in Hebrew. It doesn't exist. That was just such an important thing. And if you think about this, that also flies in the face of Christian tradition of the 1820s. How did people in the 1820s view holy men? Well, they viewed them as these celibates. They were men that never had families, never had children. That was like the highest form of holiness. And what does the restoration of the gospel do to convention? It just flips it upside down and says, nope, that's not how it works. It is not good that man be alone. Man needs to get married. Do you ever have this price where your wife completes the stuff that you're thinking and vice versa? My wife fills like all the things that I don't do well. Like she compliments me and, and I try to, I, I try, I try to compliment her. In other words, we work together and I'll never forget what the sealer said to us when we got married. He looked at my wife and I, and he says, you two will accomplish more together than you ever could alone. And with that, we're going to come to the end. Now, there's a lot more in Joseph Smith history. We're going to try and pick up some of these other stories as we deal with them in the history of the church, the restoration of the priesthood, the loss of the 116 pages, um, the Charles Anthon episode we'll talk about when we get to the translation of the Book of Mormon. It's all there. We're the work. <laughs> yeah. There's so, there's so much in this Joseph Smith history, but we're going to pause here, and we'll pick it up next time when we jump back into Section 3, and Joseph learns a tremendous lesson with the loss of the 116 pages. One thing I would really like to emphasize is how much Joseph learned from his experiences. And going back to the weakness of youth— we are easily turned if we don't gain experiences. May you recognize that the Lord is tutoring you and giving you the very experiences that you need as you learn from them and grow. Joseph will never ever make the same mistake again that he made with the 116 pages. And I think that's one of his great attributes is he learned from his experiences and surrounded himself with true friends. May you find true friends in your life. May you be a true friend to those who need you, who are experiencing the weakness of youth. And uh, with that, we end, and we'll see you next time. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.